Hello and welcome back to ESA Spotlights. My name is Amir Amin. And my name is Taylor Robbins. Joining us today is Mathieu Carenzo, a lecturer at ESA in the Entrepreneurship Department. Mathieu also holds an MBA from ESA, and after completing his two years on campus, he pushed ahead in pursuing his areas of interest in lean startups, scale-ups, and early-stage equity financing. Now, Mathieu is a seasoned entrepreneur and a dynamic business angel with current investments in scale-ups such as Glovo and Bizaway, and other promising startups too. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Mathieu as much as we did. Uh, well, Mathieu, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us here today. We're really excited to have you on the podcast. Maybe, uh, you know, just to, to get started, we'd, we'd love if you could uh, give yourself, you know, we want to hear about uh, you in your own words and, and give us a little bit of uh, an intro for the listeners. Right. Thank you. Very nice to be here with you. Um, and me in a few words, um, I divide my life in three. I teach in ESA, entrepreneurship, and uh, how to invest in startups in different courses, full-time MBA, global executive MBA, and this is one third of my life. The other third is investing in startups. I do that. I've been doing that for the last 15 years. Started as a business angel, then a GP in a VC fund, and then back to business angel. And as of today, I think the portfolio is of between 25 and 30, I should maybe know the, the exact number and uh, and then the other third is uh, outreach activities meaning whatever is not the two previous one that I commented so I am in boards of um, three different companies um, and I am trying very hard to bring transparency and bring a higher level of knowledge in the entrepreneurial ecosystem when it comes to um, early stage financing and, and, and early rounds from pre-seed to series A and B because I believe this is one of our uh, challenge in general uh, in continental Europe but more on a, on a global scale on bringing all the entrepreneurs to the level of understanding and knowledge that we as investors are managing um, to match uh, better entrepreneurs and investors so yeah that's that that's my mission <laughs> so on the on the on the you mentioned the first third of your life which is uh, as a as a professor here and it's it's been for quite some time i was very lucky to sit in your class and i hope anyone coming takes takes that course but before these three uh, portions of your life today some time ago you also did the mba like taylor and i so do you mind if we start there yeah. And delve a little bit into how you thought about the MBA all those years ago. What did you want out of it? What was campus life like compared today? Uh, you know, compared to today, I should say. Uh, so could you just des describe a little bit of that, that experience as well? Sure. So I did the MBA from 2004 to 2006. And I was commenting with Taylor just before we started recording that at that time you had one session that was taught in Spanish. Uh, that, that's a big change that doesn't exist anymore which by the way I took because I lived just before like six years in Mexico so I decided to do the MBA because uh, after university I studied business in university and uh, I started to work with Airbus 
in a sales role and managing distribution in Mexico, Central America, and Spanish-speaking Caribbean. That was my, my first job, which was kind of kind of cool. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. But I, I had the feeling that I was some kind of a marketing sales expert, uh, but I, I, I had no real understanding of the all other dynamics that you need to understand to really have a comprehensive view of what is a company. So I decided to do an MBA. Uh, why ESA? Because I wanted to come back to Europe at that stage and uh, London Business School was not sexy to me. I mean, it was a lot of finance. Too much for me. Uh, instead, would be kind of coming back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ESA always had this uh, entrepreneurial flavor that I, I, I really um, believed in, and and and, um, and that was the major reason. It's kind of a flawed reason because I was sponsored by Airbus to do the MBA, so I was supposed to go back to Airbus, <laughs> which I didn't. Um, so when I finished the MBA, uh, Airbus proposed me a job that I didn't like. So I came to see one of my prof. Was, she's called Julia Pratt. She's taking, she, she was the head of the entrepreneurship department at that time. And now she's kind of head of the MBA. And, uh, I told her, look, I am, I have a big problem. I'm supposed to go back to Airbus. I don't want to go back. I want to stay in Barcelona. My wife is happy here. She has work. And, uh, on the spot, she told me, look, how much money do you owe to Airbus? So it was like, quite a bunch of money. And she said, okay, all right, I'll pay. And so ESA bought me. You know, where they paid back my debt to to Airbus. Uh, and my commitment was to stay five years as the head of the entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship center. Uh, it was just a blessing because it was a transition to cooperate to the entrepreneurial world. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it was a door, uh, opening to being very deeply rooted in the entrepreneur, in the entrepreneurship ecosystem. Something that I, I had been involved with. But like as a side point in my life. And uh, yeah, so to go back to your question, uh, all in all, what, what the ECMBA gave me is the ability to change paths from one that I was not so happy with to the one I, I pursued for the last 15 years and I, I enjoy. Just, just for our listeners, just to be clear, Yes, it doesn't do debt forgiveness. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> um, but that's super interesting because I think a lot of us try to pivot our careers uh, in these two years. And in the two years that you were in the MBA, I'd love to know, you know, how you went about that. You know, you, you must have tried so many different things the way we did. You know, in your course, we tried to set up a company from scratch, for example. So what were the sort of experiences you had that, made you sure, you know, I'm not going to go back to, to Airbus? <sighs> I think eight, uh, 18 months or 21 months program, it would be a shame uh, to not take that time to really reflect on who you are and your values and what, what are your expectations. And, 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 and you have to be very careful because, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot of work. Uh, it's a lot of peer-to-peer pressure. There is this, this, this movement towards, uh, finding a job and, and, but you should never forget why you decided to do an MBA. And, um, and I think you should choose 
your course, specifically in the second years, in a way that you can have a clearer vision on what your expectation, what, uh, what, what are your aspirations. And if there is one thing that I've learned is that if you take only short-term economical uh, factors to take your decisions, then you take decisions that are not deeply rooted in your long-term aspiration. And the time that I had during the whole process of the MBA gave me that. I was, I mean, I think we are all different in a way that you can be happy with an organization and, 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 and aspire to go up in that organization and that, and that will really fill up your, I mean, make you happy in a way, which is kind of cheesy, but that's my point. Or what really makes you, uh, complete is not going up within any organization is, is building something, uh, make it big, make it small, whatever. And then, so my point here, and it may be like, I mean, it's not a very concrete answer, but it's more philosophical. And I think this is something you should never miss when you do the MBA is that there you won't have maybe ever again in your life, this moment of time to really reflect on, on, on what you want to do. And so, what I learned is that my value, the value that I cherish the most, it's freedom. Um, this is what makes me believe in humanity. And so if it took me 18 months to find that, and then after I take decisions on what I want to do as a professional based on other factors, then I, I didn't learn. One of the really, I think, interesting points you made is about, you know, sort of this long-term vision, vision versus maybe short-term, you know, economic incentives. And, you know, I think your your story of where you landed post-MBA is probably a really good. Uh, so, you know, I'm curious when you when you took that and, and obviously it's a it's a big leap coming out of the MBA. I mean, it's it, it really is important. I think that first step that you take because it's 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 just such an important um, transition that I think similarly you maybe only get to do once, maybe twice if you're if you're lucky, right? So you know how was that? You obviously got to go in and kind of be the head of this this hub and start to build that. But you know, was the was the initial vision just to kind of be there and you'll learn the entrepreneurship and you'll figure it out, or or had, did you kind of always see that as a stepping stone to you know more of where you are now? Always being the stepping stone because it was kind of a, a deal. It was kind of a commitment, you know. It was like five years, and I, I will do um, anything I can to build that entrepreneurship center and make it central within the, the organization. Um, but I've always had this, um, this date where uh, I would be, be kind of free again. By the way, I stayed one year more because they asked me to stay one year more. So I say I stayed six. I, my belief is that, or at least what I have seen in my life is that you have, uh, you have cycles. And in my specific life, it's cycles of seven years. So I'm trying to build my life on objectives to seven years. So I did the university, then worked seven years, then did the MBA, then worked seven years within the organization in the development of the entrepreneurship center. And then I was looking for the next seven years. And the next seven years were basically the first moment I was really in condition to decide specifically what I, what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do is being a instrumental figure in the entrepreneurial ecosystem 
starting with Barcelona and, and we'll see what happens later. And uh, so, but I had to decide, uh, would I be an entrepreneur? Would I be an investor? Would I be an advisor? Would I be a, a prof? And um, I started everything at the same time. <laughs> So I launched two companies being me involved as, as, as a founder, uh, started to invest in startups, very low amount of money. Uh, I was already teaching innovation and, uh, and what I learned, the first learning was I'm not that great as an entrepreneur for two major reasons. I think, um, the first one is I think being an, an entrepreneur with impact means that you go from a doer to a manager. I'm a good doer. I know how to craft stuff. I can, but, but put me a team of 50 people and then, well, that's very difficult. By the way, coming back to the previous point, this is something you need to learn in the MBA. I mean, we are probably all entering the MBA, entering our career with inspiration and motivation. And then one of the key points is, hey, if you want to be successful, you need to manage a team. But we are not all good at that. So we cannot all manage team, but you can lead, you can have an impact in different ways. So that was one of the, the first learning. And, and when it comes to entrepreneurship, I think there is, when it comes to people and, and profile, two things that I've seen out of those 15 or 20 years investing in startups that, that really make difference is um, first from crafter to manager and then empathy. Good entrepreneurs they have endless empathy because at the end of the day, you spend your whole time growing and scaling your company, taking care of people. 10 hours, 12 hours a day. I can't do that, man. I have three to four hours a day of empathy. I have already dedicated three to two sessions in the MBA. I have one hour left. need to give it to my family. And then I need to think about me. And I think more, most of the people will like that. So, yeah. So I said, all right, I can do consulting. I have... I, I do own a company with some, some partners and everything, but it's more of a, it has no aspiration to scale. And then I, I found my place within this ecosystem and which is investing. This is where I'm good at. And, um, what I've learned is that you don't have to be at the core of one adventure to have an impact. You can be in support of 25 and you will also have an impact. And this is what I'm doing. And I enjoy it. And if I can close the circle in sharing that knowledge with the students and making them better potential entrepreneurs and better potential investors, well, then I will keep doing that maybe another cycle of seven years. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you spoke a lot about, you know, entrepreneurs having empathy and in class uh, you know there was it was really interesting to have your perspective on you know how founders should go about their journey because i think some of the things that we learned were not very clear i think most of us think oh we have an idea we push ahead with it and have that tunnel vision until we we've, we've got something that we can sell um but when you were growing the entrepreneurship department here you obviously had a major influence on how those core values were implemented. So what did you focus on at that time? And, you know, what are the students able to tap into if they're not, you know, necessarily part of the core courses? How can they, you know, make use of that? Tricky question. Well, there is one change that is very strong and that really makes me happy. And I must confess, I'm not the, at the origin of that change. You are at the origin of that changes. Um, 
Society changed. I, I did my MBA almost 20 years ago. 20 years ago, we would look up at people that basically were charismatic, were leaders, uh, but they had quite clear professional paths. And it was investment banking, and it was nice suits, and it was big salary, and it was signing bonus. And then you had always, I mean, it's an MBA, and it, and I think it makes a huge amount of sense. You had consulting, the big four, and everything. But in entrepreneurs, nobody, really. I mean, maybe for you, it's it's like it's, you don't believe me. Entrepreneurship was, nobody would even think about entrepreneurship. Yeah, it wasn't sexy. But I was like, why would you do that, you know? Uh, so, so what changed is that this this changed completely. And I kind of like it. I can see now you all, you look, when you see somebody saying, Hey, you know, I have this, this idea, I have this mission and I want to, and I will take my courses based on that. And this, this is what I will do. 20 years ago, say, well, you didn't have a job in, in banking. That was the, the thinking. And now this is how, yeah, cool. I'll help you. What can I do? And so I think that as in the entrepreneurship center, as an institution, our role, it's not, is is to be the co-pilot to accompany that change. And I can see it in my class, man. 20 years ago, it was not as expensive as it is in terms of bidding points to enter the class. And now it becomes expensive, which means that it becomes core. Mm-hmm. So what, what we've been doing in helping entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs want to be uh, become entrepreneurs, build the ecosystem. And, 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 and the ecosystem is the business angel network, the investment fund, Finaves, which I am lucky enough to be part of the, uh, investment committee and, and all those initiatives that either are run by the school or are, or either run by you as students. Um, so, um, this is what changed. You have now, the tools to really make it happen now. This is not a word of as structures as investment banking and consulting. Well, it's always coming like, but hey, you want to be an entrepreneur. Don't expect the essay to make you an entrepreneur. We'll help you. We'll give you the tools. We'll help you fool the right, the right strings. But, but entrepreneurship is a chaotic path and it's a difficult path. And this is a lonely path compared to others that are more structured and you have to embrace that if you don't then maybe you should do something else maybe a a bit of a tangent but i'm i'm kind of curious i mean i i think all these things are obviously so important that we're changing the mindset and of course that is going to empower people at, at ESA. like you say 20 years ago if someone said they're doing entrepreneurship you're like yeah and they'd have to be pretty dedicated to want to keep at that after 18 months of people kind of laughing at them or whatever it is right whereas now You've got an idea and, you know, and, and I'm here as a, as a, I'm like, awesome. Can I test your product or whatever it may be? Absolutely. But I, I'm curious as well, you know, how much of, of sort of the development of, of like technology helps this entrepreneurship now, right? I mean, you've got an idea. You can go out and make a website for yourself and you've got that wider reach. And so how much of those tools, you know, help entrepreneurs now to be able to, to go out and, and, and launch and, and be, you know, potentially more successful than their, their counterparts, um, or sorry, their, their, their peers, you know, 20 years ago. It's, um, it's a short question, 
but then the answer may be long. Um, I think technology brought the ability to test at a lower cost your idea or your opportunity. And, and that's, that's absolutely great because you can, you can, I mean, an idea is just something in the air and it doesn't become a real opportunity if it's not tested. And technology allows you to test it very, very uh, quick. And that's great, but we should not um, fool ourselves. Um, entrepreneurial ecosystems are still quite local or they, you have access to the world, yes. But how many companies that have started in Barcelona are a success in Shanghai? So, yes, of course, technology is a tool that makes it, you know, spread around in a, in a very effective way. But, but the ecosystem still are, um, deeply rooted in environment, which lucky enough, Barcelona is one of the leading countries, the leading city in Europe for that. Um, I think that there is one thing that changed really the way we see entrepreneurship and the way you can get to the idea, idea um, points to really take an educated decision on whether you try or not one opportunity. And this is how we came from, I don't know if you remember that, Amir, this is part of the first session I give, which is we came from Darwin yeah. to Pasteur. Darwin came up with this theory of evolution through observation. Didn't test anything. Didn't even, he was on, on his boat, like, looking. And this is how we were thinking entrepreneurship in theory for years. Like, you do a business plan, and then you do a marketing analysis, and you do a survey, very quantitative, and then we'll see if this isn't a real opportunity. It just gives you a global information, comprehensive information, but it never gives you some proof. And the whole process of entrepreneurship in early stages is bringing proof to identify the symptoms. This is how you build an opportunity. And if you don't, if you just observe, you don't, you don't bring anything. So what changes is the Lean Startup Movement. This is the Startup Manual by Steve Blank in Stanford. And this logic of, that would be Pasteur, which is came up with the vaccine, not observing, but trying. First with uh, animals and, and then and then humans. And I think that we are getting to the point today where step by step we are finding the right equilibrium between observation and testing. And this is how technology has, is helping us because technology makes the test cheap and it makes the, the testing and the assumption solving process quick, cheap and effective. And 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you couldn't do it. And now, man, this is unbelievable because with the no-code or low-code movement and AI, let, let's not even enter in the term of AI, but you don't even have to be, you know, a tech-savvy guy to do those early stage, those early steps. So, yeah, I'm quite uh, happy with the moment. <laughs> Excited. Um, Matthew, thanks. thank you so much for sharing those insights on entrepreneurship. And I, th I have a feeling that everything you learned helped you a lot in your journey as an investor. So if we can go on to, to that uh, third of your life now as an investment professional, how did you first think about the difference in risk-taking as A, as a founder, and then secondly, as an investor? Because in the second uh, sort of risk spectrum, you're controlling less. Absolutely. And, 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 and I'm investing in early stage, which is exactly. <laughs> I, I think I read 
a few years ago study that showed that the worst asset class in terms of investments constantly for the last 60 years is startups. I mean, I always, I don't do that in a full-time MBA, but when I teach to investors, I start one of the sessions say, if you want to lose your money, invest in startups. I mean, and that's true on an average. This is not, startup investment is not like private equity or um, index, which is basically thought around average return. This is quasi. This is 80% will lose their money and 20% will make, will really generate a great return, which kind of brings you to the characteristic on the mindset of the early stage investor of the business angels. You have to believe you're part of the 20% so that you will take the risk, which is not a sign of humbleness. But anyway, so when it comes to risk in terms of investment, I, I think you have to be if you dedicate more than 15, 20%, let's say of your savings, if you take the conscious decision to spend more than this amount of your percentage of your wealth in startup, then you have to accept the fact that there is some kind of a transcendental uh, motivation for you to do that because it doesn't make any sense. For me, I have too much of my wealth in startups, but this is because I love it. I want to be part of that and I'm teaching it and I'm advising and it's all a circle, uh, um, a virtuous circle in that sense. But if you're looking after the optimization of your return of your wealth, probably you should not invest that much in startups. <laughs> that would be cautious. Now, I believe something else and this is why I, I'm, I'm really convinced and committed with, 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 with the entrepreneurial ecosystem is that Linked to that value of freedom, I believe in in the fact that startup and innovation are creating new companies, are creating welfare for the whole society. Uh, and if you look at companies that have, there have been a lot of studies on that, and one very interesting from the Kaufman Foundation that shows that companies are creating jobs mostly between your five and ten of their life. If you look at big corporation that we all know, you look at how many job did you create in those last 10 years versus the previous 10 years? You're going to see that listed company, they don't create that many jobs. So, and we, we have an issue on a global scale, which is not in the same way. It's stronger in Europe than in other places, but we need to find jobs to the, all the people we are educating. And, and will, this will happen if we create new companies because we can create companies, new companies are creating jobs. And this is one of my proud, you know, I have, invested in more than 50 companies since I started. And there's all those companies created more than 10,000 jobs and would have high invested in listed companies on the eBex or in, in what I, I would not feel that sense of ownership. Um, this is one of the, the reason I do spend slash invest <laughs> most of my money in startups. And then there is another point, which is when you start investing in startup, you know, we always say business central and VCs is, is short-term play. You get in and you get out. Uh, it's a lie. You build your D-flow over 30 years. So once you were there, and I've been there for 15 years, I can see the D-flow that I have now, my position, how I can enter deals. It's getting better every year. Why, why, I should never stop. It took me 15 years to get there. Uh, I've paid my dues. I've lost money investing. I've made money investing. But now I can, I feel the, the moment to get to be 
to generate positive impact is now. So if I can participate and help entrepreneurs create new companies, innovate, create jobs, bring value to their customers, then then that works. I'll sign. Um, and then, you know, you need to do stuff that you like. I do not enjoy going in my on my computer and buy some shares. I just, I can't do that. But it's like, ah, oh, you know, I have to do this arbitrage between that and that. I just don't enjoy it. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean... Like you say, right? You want to you want to sort of be more involved. You don't want to just go and buy a share of Apple and Kano kind of is what it is. And so you know you've been getting involved with with these companies for so long. And as you say, you know you've you've built up this wealth of experience now. You know, so you're going in a, as an investor, but you know we've talked about the the three different areas that you look at. You know, how does your role as as an advisor you know play into all of this and and the investing you do? And are you uh you know much more? I I would make the assumption that you're a much more active investor than than and perhaps uh, you know some of your some of your peers. Well, yes, no. I have twenty five, so it's not like I can spend a lot of time, you know, with each of those companies. But I try to help as much as I can. That sometimes, and there is there is it's an interesting learning, the perception of time, uh, and the perception of dedication that sometimes entrepreneurs uh, have is very different from the investor. Um, because an entrepreneur has all his eggs in one adventure, spending 100%, 200% of her or his time on that specific project. It's not my case. I have 25. So um, what I do is that I, I'm very transparent, candid, and direct with the entrepreneurs. Uh, I don't promise I will be always supporting and helping because that would be a lie, but I, I'll do whatever I can to help them succeed. And whatever I can is I have the network that they don't have, so I will open my network. And I'll be credible when I do that because I did invest in the companies. Uh, and I I will help with um, consecutive round of, invest, of investment because this is where I've been involved and I can help. So I help networking, I helped fundraising, and I help strategy, customer acquisition. This is where I, I really can bring value. And then, you know, if entrepreneurs feel they need my help on other topics, is that they don't have the right network of advisor. And this is also a way to select them. And also, you know, as investor, we are more available when this is our interest to be available, meaning closer to a secondary or an exit, I'm always available. <laughs> so... So our listeners maybe won't know this, but one of the companies that, uh, you know, you, you helped very early on in their, in their life cycle was Glovo. And I think it's safe to say 99% of Barcelona probably is using that app right now, yeah. which is an incredible feat. But as you mentioned, you know, you're really getting involved in these companies at an early, early stage. And so, if we can go through that that sort of uh, company in particular and your experience, you know, you know, when you first encountered the team and what they were trying to do, you know, how did you, you know, what was your framework for thinking about the, the idea? How did you, you know, when did you get that feeling? Actually, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna back these guys. So, Glow is an interesting story in the fact. Well, so there's one thing I liked 
from the first moment, which is the team, Oscar and Sasha, because Oscar was like 20 years old. Well, like wow. he was a kid and Sasha was probably 35. And, uh, so basically Oscar just came back from the U.S. where he studied and, and worked. He worked at Airbus, by the way. Like, but I worked six years. He worked six months. And he was like, oh, no way. So he left. And then there was a copy based off Postmate. And um, Oscar and Sasha, more or less at the same time, they came up with the idea of reproducing the same business model in Spain. And they somewhat were introduced one, one with the other. And when I met them, they were already working together. And what was very interesting is that Sasha, 35 years old, 40 maybe, 12 years of experience already in the startup environment, was more knowledgeable. But he saw from the first day that the other guy was more charismatic and he was a CEO. He has the empathy. So he said, Woo, I will not put my ego there. I will team up with him. And Oscar was smart enough to say, wait a second, I can work with that guy. I want to leave that. This is my aspiration. But he knows out of all his experience, a lot more customer acquisition and everything. So they team up very early, find their position. And it was kind of the other way you would expect them to present themselves. So I liked it. Uh, I liked full transparency of what they know, what they didn't know. I love the power of I don't know. One of the questions that I did to Oscar, he said, well, look, I have no idea. And then he called me two days later and said, hey, I thought about what you were saying, and I and, and, and I, I worked on it, and now this is my answer. So team was nice. Copy-paste, as an investor, is always a safe bet because you don't ask yourself if that makes sense or not as an idea. And you ask yourself, is this team able or not to adapt the business model to that specific ecosystem? And so... It's easier to analyze, to analyze. So I met them and then we met 15 days later. And within those two weeks, they sent me a very nice A4, very basic PDF with the metrics. And it was going like this. <laughs> very well like this. It's a podcast you don't see, but it was very, very uh, good in terms of metrics. I test the product. I uh, send the globals to the notary so that they will bring back me papers. And Oscar brought it to me. <laughs> and so I said, well, it was not a lie. You're really doing it. Yeah. it. They had already 10 or 15 riders, but he would just take his bike and doing it. So uh, I said, hey, come. Have a coffee. Say, no, I have another uh, global to deliver. Say, okay. And, and so I was quite convinced because... Traction was strong, no doubt with the business model, which later we had to change, but that's the other, another story. Uh, and you had the typical, um, pre-investment criteria. So it's market, team, value proposition, timing, scale. It was all fitting very well, but we had one issue. It was valuation. I was, so if I do remember well, we're talking about, uh, I thought it was 2.8 million because they already had a bit of traction and they were going for 3.2 so i said no and uh one month later oscar called me and he said look it is closed at 3.2 so by the way you're a loser <laughs> uh, but i like you we had during this whole discussion and everything it was kind of transparent we, we get along well i liked him he liked me say but so i won't lower the valuation for you but if you want to get in at that valuation I will make you uh, 
I will make sure that you can. So I said, all right, call you yes, I call you tomorrow. And I couldn't sleep. <laughs> so I called him on the following morning and I said, okay, I'll invest. Which is the exemplification of FOMO. Fear of missing out. I was so afraid of missing it that uh, I did invest. On top of that, I had friends. I always do my due diligence on the team and on the industrial expertise. I'm not an expert in last time logistic. I became kind of, but at that time I was not. So I I talked to two friends of mine. One was already an investor in the company before and was very positive. It's kind of logic because he was following on, so it's not like a big surprise. Uh, and, and and another very good friend that is involved in transportation and logistics for years. And it was all green light. The fact that, which brings me to one learning. One of the art of business angel investment is being considered enough within your ecosystem so that entrepreneurs will choose you. Because when deals are very interesting and very promising, that tends to be oversubscribed. So you have this shift in power. You know, most of the time the offer is, is limited and the demand of money is very high. But for this specific deal of a globe, it was the other way. So that's Oscar and Sasha deciding who's getting in. And if you want them to choose you, then you have to bring value. That's amazing. And one of the things, as you spoke, I thought about, because I can recall very clearly that you are also a tough investor as well. So tough meaning, you know, you know where the potential pitfalls are and you know where the red flags are in, in, in uh, you know, an entrepreneur's idea. So across, you know, your time, what are the sort of red flags when you see them, generally speaking? And that could be something related to the founder or it could even be, as you mentioned, someone coming too early and saying, this is just an idea and have, they have nothing to, to prove uh, that it, it can potentially exist. Well, I'm, 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 there is two different worlds. You know, there is the world of I'm going to do that and the world of I've done that. And you, the first thing is that everybody can say they will do whatever or they will be successful. And very few are just doing it. So I like what, what I don't like is no proof of traction. I always say that is that yeah. there is no traction. There is just proof of traction. It's like love. There is no love. There's just proof of love. So show me proof of love, proof of traction. Don't. Don't blah, blah. So uh, what I, the red flags are non-affirmations that are not backed with any data. Like, I know that people, I'm going to do that. I'm going to stop, you know, stop bragging around. Just tell me what is it that you're doing? Uh, and there is two different, well, uh, coming back to my previous point. Did you send an invoice? Yes or no? Did anybody pay for that? Yes or no? And when they say no, my experience is that I'm the worst investor on earth. Pre-revenue, I have 100% uh, failure. Despite the way now I say that to the entrepreneurs, when they come to me and they say, hey, uh, I want you to invest. And I say, did you generate revenue already? No. I say, look, you don't want me. Because <laughs> if I invest in you, your probability of success is zero. So, no, I think... It's, it's a very difficult story, Amir, uh, the very difficult question of early red flags. Um, because all the teams are committed. All the teams are uh, engaged. All the teams embrace their projects. So you cannot use that. The good and bad, bad teams are kind of the same. Instead of pointing red flags, I'm going to point green flags. And green flags I see on the team 
on how early the team is able to build a comprehensive, complete set of skills. It means that there is a stronger probability that a startup will be successful if I have a old range, all range of diversity, old, young, woman, men, geek, business, offer, demand when it comes to the marketplace you're building. The more diversity early on shows a conscious understanding that you need a very varied set of skills to be successful at, at growing and scaling a company. So it's true that when I see a group of three uh, students from the MBA coming from the same background, I know, by the way, they will fight against each other and it's going to be one or two and, and just, you know, just have them in a new venture course. I like, in my experience, the teams that already are looking for diversity early are more successful. Um, so that's, that's a, a green flag. And then you want, you, you, I mean, there is one thing which is sure is that doers will make it happen. It will work. They will be able to build a company which is sustainable always. They will do the pivoting. They will be questioning themselves enough not to hit always the, the wall with their assumptions. They will move around. Now, this is kind of easy to find. What's difficult to find is, will they be able to transition to manager and will they be able to really build a company which is attractive enough for a for Series A, Series B, Series C kind of investors. And this you can start to see on two things. I I really focus more on that those last few years is what's the plan in terms of building the C-suite? Because the C-suite is what's going to make you raise the, B, the, the Series B. So are you already aware of what you can do, what you cannot do? And what are the people and the skills, not the people, the skills you need to build up for the next, for the next series, which by the way are important for me because this is where I get the secondaries. Uh, so quite early, a clear vision how to build uh, the C-suite and very early consciousness about the culture. C-suite and culture are the two major factors that brings you from 50 people within the team to 200. If this is not embedded within the growth scale plan, it's, there is a high probability that you'll stay around here, which for me is the worth as an investor. Uh, it's really interesting, these these green flags that you talk about and, and maybe pairing this with, with your previous answer, um, you know, around, uh, you know, I, I look back to, I think of the guys at Glovo and, and, you know, how you kind of felt you gelled with those two founders, you know. I'm curious if there's any um, any time where you see all these green flags, but then you maybe didn't get the the right vibe from the investors, right? Or or potentially vice versa, where you really you know you felt like you really connected with the investors, but you weren't seeing those, and you know how much that actually sort of affects. Because I you know I think and correct me if I'm wrong, that also probably builds a lot into one of your focuses you're just talking about now around culture, right? And where you see that down the line. You know, the, how you see those founders interacting, how you see that, how is that going to lead into this culture that is so critical to get it past that, uh, yeah. that early stage? That's business angels versus VCs. <laughs> <laughs> There's a big difference. 
And I should just say between BA and VC is that B investment, it's not that it's emotional, but you use, you can, man, it's your money. So it, you don't have to go to the investment committee and explain to the LPs that we don't invest in that some company because I believe this guy is just, I, I don't like him. I can do that with my money. I did it. There is a story. I mean, I was, this is this company that, by the way, is quite successful. And I, I was at home and I wasn't able to, to, to sleep. And my wife just told me, look, you know what? Tell me what's going on or go to sleep somewhere else because this is, this is, this is not working. So I tell her, look, I have, I need to go to sign a shelter agreement tomorrow with that company. And I mean, everything is great. I've looked to all my metrics of evaluation. It's great. I just don't like the guy. And she tell me, well, don't invest. And I said, well, be all right. <laughs> and then I go, I slept. <laughs> and I go to the after and say, look, I'm really sorry, but I will not invest in your company because I probably didn't was, I was not as candid as saying, I don't like you. Uh, but I said something that was related to the culture or whatever. That is the big difference between, as you just say, I mean, between business angel and VC and VCs do, you have to have a rational logic of investment process that is not emotional. By the way, that's the difference between artisan and industry. VCs and industry, business angel is artesania. And there is stuff you can do in a VC that you cannot do as a business center to change people. As a GP in a VC, there is absolutely no reason if this is all green flags not to invest because I don't have a good relationship with that, with that guy. We'll just change to GP, change the analyst and let's go for it. But as a business center, it doesn't work like this. Um, so that's, that's, uh, yeah, that happens. That happens, and um, sometimes it led me to not invest in a great startup. Uh, close our, our our time with you, Matthew. We know you travel a lot, and we know you're on the road a lot. Outside of the, the I'd say, recognized hubs for innovation, where have you been to that you thought, hang on, wow, there's some really exciting things happening here. Maybe it's an emerging economy, maybe it's... Uh, still something like Barcelona or Silicon Valley, but what stands out to you as, as a real re- or really interesting hub where the ecosystem is growing, the number of investors and entrepreneurs are starting to collaborate more, uh, and maybe is on your radar as, as, as the next spot? I mean, clearly the next, fun- the next frontier is Africa. And by the way, I'm doing my first stop in investment um, in Ivory Coast, Next week, signing the whole shareholder agreement. And, um, by the way, we're 2023 in 2022, which was one of the biggest drop ever in the history of VC investment. And, and, uh, uh, the only continent that still grew is Africa. So much talent, so much growth, so many young people wanting to change the world. I've been teaching in Ivory Coast for the last 15 years, also, you know, been in in schools that we are related with, with the SA in Kenya, in Nigeria. And I have absolutely no, no doubt that the next 20, 30, 50 years are going to be Africa. It's already started. And, um, it's also a question of education. So if there is something that I feel I have an impact, it's where I'm there. Not that I have less impact when I teach here in Barcelona, but if there is something that 
you know, I was thinking about it and I wanted to share with you and, and when it comes to teaching. And I, I don't find any good rationale behind. But what I've been experiencing those last 10 years of teaching is that you become better as a teacher. And it's super cheesy what I'm going to say, but that's, that's what I feel. It's like, it's, it's also related with how much you like your students, how much you, it's not just liking to transfer of knowledge is do you like the, the individuals that you have in your class? And what I've been experiencing is that every year I like you guys better. I, and, and I think it's not me. I think it's the concerns, the commitment that you have to the society is stronger than the one that I had as a student. And yeah, that helps me work harder and, and try to, to give the right level of, uh, of knowledge that you guys deserve. It's a good thing I wasn't in your class then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Matthew. We really appreciated having you on today. It was a pleasure, guys. Thank you, Matthew.